You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. He's Noah Ballard. How are you, buddy? I'm great. God, it has been a dog's age since we've seen each other. And I could not be happier to be talking about movies again with you. Sort of live. Since mastered the game of golf since our last episode. Incredible. Uh, I've gotten some nice feedback on our golf episode. Yeah, uh, from I have people who know golf or no? People who know me. <laughs> yeah, that's our audience. We're jazzed to be back today with an episode about the too often overlooked films of a pioneering American artist, Gordon Parks. He is pr- known primarily as a photographer. He was the first black photographer to ever work at life magazine which was the the dominant magazine of the what like the 40s 50s 60s i don't know what you what do you feel like the i would say the better part of the 20th century yeah you could say that um yeah he started employment there in in 1948 and took influential photographs of people like muhammad ali malcolm x he would he did um photo essays in the south in the 60s um, telling stories of black people in poverty that were unbeknownst to white Northeasterners at the time. Um, there are just so many books about his photography. There is a new one com- uh, that is out right now called The Atmosphere of Crime that chronicles the years he spent as a, uh, as a crime photographer. Um, he's a true renaissance man, Gordon Parks. For sure, yeah. It's interesting, too, to read about his life that's of all this art he made culture, white cultures, shall we say parenthetically really did a number on like not having a lot of his stuff come out, like despite his just breadth of work. Um, So it's nice to go back and really like engage with movies that's, you know, were made by major studios, but just like really didn't have the marketing campaign or really like the distribution model in place for people to find them. Right. So the first movie we're going to talk about today, and this is such an important or a piece of trivia that I would think would be much more widely known, but he's the first black director ever to make a Hollywood studio film, The Learning Tree in 1969. And then we're going to talk about Shaft, which is the movie of his that you probably know um, by name, most likely. And then we're going to talk about a movie from 1976 called Lead Belly, about the life of the of the folk singer. Um, and we have... Craig Rice coming up on the program. I was really lucky and happy to get to speak with Craig, who made a documentary about Gordon Parks in the late 90s, or no, in 2000. It's now 20 years old, called Half Past Autumn. So that was a really fun chat. Um, talk about the what it was like to spend years with the man and uh, have him be your idol. And uh, so Craig's coming up. Before we jump into our first film, I want to remind you to please like and subscribe the Playlist Podcast Network, wherever you get your shows, and check out our fellow shows like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, Indie Beat, Deep Focus Podcast. You can get these programs wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, uh, Apple, Stitcher, wherever. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. 
Noah, shall we start with the learning tree? This is Gordon Parks, successful and honored photojournalist. His career as composer, poet, and author has brought him worldwide recognition. His music, like the music you're hearing, has been performed by symphony orchestras in New York, Philadelphia, Venice, and Munich. His books have been published in nine languages. The 15th and youngest child of a Kansas farmer, he told of how it was growing up in his best-selling novel, The Learning Tree. And now, Gordon Parks has returned to the town where he lived it, and there made that story into a motion picture. My baby's gone. 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 Learning Tree, 1969, a story set in Kansas during the 1920s, covers less than a year in the life of a black teenager and documents the veritable deluge of events which force him into sudden manhood. This is based on Parks' 1963 largely autobiographical novel about growing up in Fort Scott, Kansas. Um, There's a great bit in the documentary that Craig Rice made about somebody just asking Gordon to write a book and him being like, I've never written a book before, but I'll give it a try. And in this, in this really kind of snowballing way that his, he made this incredible career for himself, he then turned that into the first movie in Hollywood by a black director. He's just a total like self-made um, American artist. Yes. And I would argue, though, that the narrative of it is in a very, like, 20th century American folklore kind of tone. I mean, it smacks a lot of To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. So it's not anything so outrageous in scope that, you know, you wouldn't get funding, especially after the success of movies like that and books like that, um, Mm -hmm. to really attract an audience at this time. So it hinges on Newt, who is the aforementioned teenager living in Cherokee Flats, Kansas, in the movie. And he is a fairly standard young high schooler. He's got friends, some of whom are harmless and he hangs out with. And then one of whom is sort of like a little bit, uh, comes from, has a single father, struggling. This is, uh, this is Marcus Savage played by Alex Clark, who Marcus is like a little little wilder, um, a little more at odds with Newt in their friend group. And pretty quickly, um, through just, you know, teenage chicanery, they start eating a neighbor's apples, and the neighbor is a, a, white, a white fellow who uh, stops them from doing so rather violently, but then Marcus uh, beats up the neighbor... Um, and you, then you sort of have these two parallel paths of Marcus being sent to prison and then Newt trying to sort of navigate high school, but all, all the while knowing that like Marcus may kind of come back for him. They will clash again at, at some point. Um, and you get all these interesting ways in which his family, all the different ways the, the wingers, um, coexist and interact and are put down by the white people in Cherokee Flats. Um, His mom works for a local judge and 
he was like sometimes helpful and sometimes not. And then you get a pretty violent sheriff played by a character actor, Dana Elkar, like right away. Yeah, the character of Marcus is pretty interesting because, you know, in a different racial context, he'd be like an Eddie Haskell type character mm, where he yeah, just sort true. of is the bad influence that gets them to, yeah, eat the neighbor's apples or whatever. But then there is the, of course, the influence of white culture that takes things much further than they like rightfully should in order to punish these young men. But I think Parks is also savvy enough too to show that like Marcus has like something in him that is like a bit off. Like he takes these moments where he is inevitably punished a little bit too far in making them sort of physically violent, you know, or whatever it happens to be. So I don't think it feels like a straight up morality tale to me, which is nice. And it sets up this interesting contrast between Newt, who is trying to navigate the system, like through his school and his guidance counselor and the principal being like, hey, I'm going to put in the work. I want to go to college and having the system look back and be like, that's a waste of money. And then you have Marcus on the other side of it, who's just like not having any of it. And they're both sort of getting equally punished and maybe even like squeezed by this system, you know, being incarcerated for Marcus. And then for Newt, you know, we end up in this court case trial by the end that the defense hangs on his testimony. And of course, Marcus and his family are up against Newt and his family. And it's all very fascinating, but I do think that central friendship is one of the more, most compelling things about the film. Yeah. I think you raise a good point because both this and Leadbelly really complicate and show that there is no easy answer for like the like this nature nurture question of a young black man trying to exist in incredibly like racist times like the South and the Midwest in the 1920s. So it's like every interaction with white people tends to be so traumatic. I mean, like right away in this movie, you have a, you have a shooting, um, which is upsetting, but far more upsetting um, than I, I, I think in a filmmaking sense, the more upsetting part is Sheriff Kirky paying Newt and his friends to fish the murdered man out of the river and just being like, and how everyone's just kind of like gathered around and it's just like, you know, I'll give you 10 cents if you do it. And everyone's just kind of sitting and swimming in that morbidity together. And like, you know that that's going to drive everybody insane in a different way. And even the insult at the end too, where not only has he killed a man in front of them and paid them to fish him out of the river, but then he like attempts to stiff them on the money they agreed upon right. and forces Newt to insist they, he, that he, they be paid for the work that they did. Mm-hmm. It's like, t- I mean, that microcosm right there of just like the situation and then the implication of like the labor that needs to go into it. And then the, you know, theft of wages at the tail end of it. It's just so perfectly uh, encapsulating of, I think, Parks's larger message about how these boys, you know, come of age, the sudden manhood that we spoke of. This brings me to, I think, one of the big takeaways here is that being 
an all-time great photographer, Parks' best mode is observation, is figuring out how these thorny external forces um, affect people. I'm going to argue he's really not a great interior director. One of the weirdest things about this coming-of-age story is it's I don't really feel like I know Newt very well or like there is all that much focus on him, but it's it's much more of these like incredibly well observed um bits of 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 racism and of just how difficult it is to how guilt-ridden like every interaction is. Like Newt has this interaction with a guidance counselor who tries to dissuade him rather rudely from going to college. Newt tells the guidance counselor, you know all the black students hate you, right? At being so angry at having been put down that way. And then they go to the principal and there's just like this weird, completely unjust moment where the principal's like, have you been telling the kids this? And the counselor's like, well, that was the old principal's policy. And the guy was like, that's 20 years ago. And in that moment, you just realize like how many people have been stopped from their dreams and from advancing for 20 years because nobody bothered to like check the policy. And then you have the moment where the principal's like, well, you have to understand nude about the guidance counselor is that she's from another time. Like that's not how I would do things. And nobody has to use the words like white fragility or white privilege or any of the the terms that we have today. And it's still just so effective because it's observed and it's just allowed to sit there and you understand in this very humanist um, you know, childlike, young person-like way how unfair this is and how this apology is not remotely cutting it. Right. And I think it's really nuanced to not just have the guidance counselor be like going to college is a waste of money, but then showing, you know, who polices the police here yeah. in the principal, you know, making lip service to, you know, change that he will inevitably do if newt waits long enough you know dot 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 uh but it's it's so interesting that parks like just doesn't fall on an easy cliche there and actually looks at not individual hate but like a system you know that's what's so fascinating about this whole movie is that there's so many different systems in play it's a great looking movie i mean that that should be said about all three well, of from these. the opening montage, yeah, it's beautifully shot. And there's like some really good technical photography done here. There's some really good crane work. Like I don't typically comment on the crane work. <laughs> I don't think movies. I've ever heard you comment on the crane but work. But there's this really great one where it's in the it's like the third shot of the movie or something where the camera like swoops over this field as like Newt's running through it. And right. it really just like conveys for this young man, just like how space around him feels totally limitless. Right. He's not trying to make you be like, I'm a photographer, so I made a movie that's like photographs. He's very interested in narrative and, and entertainment. Uh, these movies are all, I think, at least attempting throughout to be quite entertaining. Yeah. I think the one of the best scenes in the movie is the boxing match. Yes. Where it's not your very chancy and like one rough and tumble fighter against another. It's just like every all the people they can find that are willing to fight each other all in the same ring, sort of WWE style. And right. if you hit the mat, you have to roll out and who's ever left gets the six dollars or whatever. But of course, um, like more disturbing than that because it's like all the white people being like, 
black teenagers. You want to come in here and beat the shit out of each other for exactly. our enjoyment? Um, I mean, it's, and then the the close up shots of like the spectators' faces and like their animal outbursts, like depending on what's happening in front of them, is like it's very arresting mm-hmm. and upsetting. I think the movie does a if the mission of the movie is to explain what it was like to grow up black in Kansas in the twenties, I think it does an incredible job. But like when you think about Scout into Kill a Mockingbird or uh, Chiron in Moonlight or Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye or Lady Bird, you know, quintessential coming of age stories, new and old. They're focused on that person and how they change, like fundamentally. And it's it takes a while to find Newt. I don't really find him. It feels like these were very well observed explanations of like what shapes and breaks a person, like an adult person later, which is where Gordon Parks was coming from. Um, But I I I just don't feel for that POV coming-of-age character, which is a failing in the genre, I think. Sure. Yeah. I disagree slightly with you. I think it, it took me a beat to find Newt, but ultimately, by the end, I, I felt pretty sympathetic to his plight. That's what I mean, though. I'm sympathetic to his plight. I think it's well-explained, but who is that kid? Yeah, he kind of lacks, like, a a hobby or, like, a thing. <laughs> I mean, he like wants Personal to succeed. specificity. Yeah, he like wants to succeed, and like that's resonant. But I guess you, you are right that, like, what is his what is his character? It's the outward um, forces, indeed. And this is the other side of that, like, you know, sort of twentieth century, early twentieth century American life that we have so glorified. It's like, let's think about this from like, you know, what it would look like from the lens of a a black protagonist. I mean, even a story like to kill a mockingbird is ultimately a white story. And that's just something that they had to endure watching this man not receive justice. But like, imagine if the story was him. Yeah. It's kind of like a, it actually is narratively affected in that way. Every time they try to do the coming of age thing was like, and that was when we went to go get apples. It like ruins their lives. It's like, and that was when we went to the friend every time they like, you know, every time, you know, a teen movie like you described before, like they commit some small act of larceny, yeah. you know, it's just like something they laugh about in their yearbook. But this is like every time they steal an apple from somebody, like they lose a buddy or they witness a murder. And I know in a cultural sense, I, I'm sounding very naive here. I'm just saying in like a movie sense, like in this genre, it's like, and, and now our protagonist decides he wants to go to college. And then the person's like, you don't go to college. It's like, and now I have my fight with the person I've been rivals with. And it's like, well, and that person is killed because they exhibited the slightest aggression. It's just like the... The Buildings Romain movie thing is not allowed to resolve because of horrifying violence getting in the way over and over. Absolutely. I think that's a good part of it. Um, let's tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then rate The Learning Tree. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. 
Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think that The Learning Tree is a fairly easy good-bad for me. I think um, it should definitely be more known. I think more people... If you watch this movie, you could be, you absolutely see a directorial voice and a style being born um, effectively and evocatively told with actors you do not know. Most of these people did not go on to, um, to well-known careers. Um, so there's a lot of power in the filmmaking just to pull that off. Um, but it's also like a flawed, inherently unsatisfying kind of first movie about trauma, which makes me probably unlikely to rewatch. So good, bad. I'm going to disagree with you in that I thought this one was like very warm and sort of charming in the ways that, you know, these moments of maturity do happen unexpectedly. Uh, and I, I, in terms of the watch, like I think it was, I my favorite of the three actually. So I'm going to give this one a, a good, good. Fair enough. Should we talk to Craig Rice? I would love that. In a long and fruitful creative career. Our guest today has been a film director, a television producer, a manager of some of the 20th century's best musicians, a film festival programmer, a college professor, a music video and commercial director, an entrepreneur. His career is intersected with artists ranging from Prince to John Sayles, from Whitney Houston to Gordon Parks. And he's here today to talk about his Emmy-nominated documentary, Half Past Autumn, and the time he spent with Parks making that documentary now 20 years ago. Craig Lawrence Rice, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. So I heard you say in another interview that when you were a teenager, your mom gave you a copy of Gordon Parks' memoir, A Choice of Weapons. Why did she do that? I was starting to get into trouble. And, you know, I mean, I, I was, I, I started getting in trouble before college, before high school. I was, a, I was kicked out of kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. So I was not, I was every teacher's nightmare. You had a streak going. Yeah, exactly. And so this, my mother really thought that, um, you know, because from Minneapolis and stuff, she got the book and said, hey, read this book, Choice of Weapons. And so it, uh, it was something that really inspired me um, to sort of use life weapons to, to structure and fight um, what I felt was injustice and wrongdoing and, and set of death weapons. And that really kind of stuck with me. Um, I think I was angry. I think I was an angry young man. And, and I think that's where it really came from. So I had to use, turn this into some kind of action. And I think part of that's why I've done a lot of different things. I've kind of, I want, I want things that I do to be positive. I think that I've always tried to make things, which Gordon said to me, he said, uh, you, you know, your job is to always keep everything in the canon of your work. So you know, 
figure out who you are, what you want it to be, and do that. So that's kind of what I've always tried to do. So. When did you become familiar with his with his art, photography? Probably, probably my early teens when she gave me the book. I'd been, thus I started to get because the thing about my my parents is that they they identified. I mean, why I wanted to be a director is because my mom told me what a director did. Mm. You know, so I said to her, who, I was looking at Stalag 17. I said, who does this? She said, well, that's the director. They do this. And so then I, okay, that's what a director does. Okay, then she, so Gordon Parks, so they knew what he, then they could point it out. So I just, she, they gave me sort of the, the um, understanding of, of different aspects of art. You know, who Duke Ellington was, who Miles Davis was, who was, you know, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, you know, that that's kind of, I think you need that as a kid. And then as you go to early teens, you definitely need that. So you can kind of find your way in this yeah. world of art. So when in your life did it become a possibility that you might have the opportunity to, to tell his story? Um, I met him, met him in the, um, when I was at USC. Um, I went to New York with the, the woman that I was seeing at this time. And uh I met him during that, so it would probably be as probably twenty something, twenty four, you know, something like that. And uh, I always knew that I wanted to do something. Just a brief conversation was no way near what the years that I spent with him later on. It was just like you know, he was very impressive. I had read his book, and so I was definitely, and I've seen his paintings, and had seen his movies, and had seen his photography, and I'd seen how. So by that time, I was impressed, and I really again that whole choice of weapons stuck with me. So that um, then um, probably will be not probably eight years later. I tried to um, in the early '90s, mid '90s. I was had tried to try to get in touch with him, try to get it to work, make a film. And obviously, like anybody, you know, it's, you try and try and try and can't get get through it. So I was working. Um, I had my agent at the time um, had become Denzel Washington's partner, mm-hmm. um, and he had remembered that I had tried. I'd, literally put the thing in the drawer, literally put it in the drawer and forgot about it. He called me up and Denzel wanted to start a company called Monday Lane. He said, you know, what about your project about Gordon Park? I said, it's in a drawer. He said, well, take it out, send it to us. We, you know, we might want to get involved in this. And that's kind of how it happened. So that was like 97, something like that. When it came to spending time with him for years and having that access and making the documentary, what were you most curious to to learn i just i wanted people to I, I think more than what i wanted to learn i wanted people to learn about him and to understand that first of all it, it, i mean his value system he's a humanist and his value system is really strong but he also believed in art and art is a way he felt we could open up people open up people's lives bring people together um bring and show issues that that are not seen um you know he truly, truly believed that. And I wanted people to see that um, because I could feel it and sense it. And also he, he tried things like I was saying before, you know, I by nature did that, but I don't think people try, try things, even if they're going to fail. He failed at things he tried at. I mean, not everything. It was, in, you know, he was a professional basketball player. He was pretty good at winning. Such a wild detail. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but he, he, you know, he did try. He tried an, an, an opera that wasn't successful. He tried the one in the cello and was not good at it. Um, we actually shot him and we decided not to put that in the movie. It was just too much information. Mm. But, you know, you know, but he was trying. He just, I mean, like he says in the movie about, 
Ryan did right. He never did it before he was going to give it a try. And I think that you should try everything, you know, and you never know when you might be good at something. And you might not, but you might just expand yourself. So. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I wanted to do that we never did get to in the movie, I tried because of my music background, I wanted to make a record of Gordon, ah. you know. I really did. We tried to get it together, but he, you know, he would, as he got older, it was harder to make things happen, you know, get, you know, move forward sometimes with certain things. But uh, yeah, that was one of my goals, you know, but it unfortunately never happened. I mean, anyone can gather from watching the movie that he is a, a born storyteller with just a wealth of great stories to tell. But how did you find him as an interview when you would sit down and get to talking? Incredibly astute. I mean, he remembers the names of people he went to high school with. I mean, their first and last names. I, I don't know if I have that ability. That's wild. <laughs> you know, I mean, he he's, has a great, incredible memory, but also he has an incredible um uh, level of energy focus which is you know i've done a lot of docs and i've done a lot of interviews with different people at different age ranges and he has the ability to focus um which even some younger people don't have the ability to do that so when you're talking about a specific issue you can actually the core straight down to the important elements of the story and the great thing that i learned from him or what he can do i don't know if i learned it from him, but I, I witnessed it you can ask him the same question later on because we did several interviews he will tell you the exact same story in the exact same way mm. every time. So he's got a pretty good format, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he has, t- he t- I was always amazed. I said, and this is where he's going to say this, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? So um, one of the tricks that I had learned early on doing docs was, was ask a, a series of questions up front. First thing, you want to get to know the person, get them to trust you. So we did an, an interview basically about him and his life and stuff like that. And then you have to do it later on in the film. Once you've had some time, you've had some arguments, you've gotten along, you've had, you know, then do it again and you get, but it's funny, but his first interview is identical to the last one. Well, I sort of, I wanted to dig into that a little bit because one of the themes that comes up in his life's work and in your doc is whatever that quality was of getting people to trust and believe in him, whether a photography documentary subject, someone he wanted to collaborate with, he was clearly able to forge bonds very quickly and genuinely. And do you feel like that consistency was part of that? Or how did that go with you? I think it was just that he's such a sincere person. He doesn't do anything with malice. (laughs) Um, So he doesn't have any, any, so you don't feel this kind of like, this is what I want out of it kind of scenario. Gotcha. He's very open. He's very honest. He's not very giving. Yeah, yeah. Not, it's, it's, he's got just, it's just an honesty to him that, that I think people sense. And I, I watched him. We were at one time, and, and part of it is obviously his reputation and as he's gotten older is powerful. We were shooting in Harlem and a street with him and the street gang uh, approached us because we, you know, we had lights and cameras and you know sound and stuff like that. And so it was, I said, okay, this is going to be an issue here right now. But it's it, and it started. But as soon as Gordon turned around and they saw it was him, it's like it was like this. He's like magic. It's like oh my god, they just like the whole thing. It happened in the favelas and Brazil. And Brazil. I mean, it's you know I think people sometimes their their aura radiates and their reputation magnifies that, and so they just become these people that even people that want to cause harm and just like are into him they just want to talk to him they just there's something about him it's just it's a it's a, it's a magical to see you know so. let's talk about since the focus of our podcast is on his on his films i'm curious how 
what you make of those and how they impacted you. When did you first see a Gordon Parks movie? Um, Learning Tree was the first one. Okay. And so I've seen, I've seen, actually seen them in order because I'm of that age. You watched them um, when they came out? Yeah, yeah, they came out. So um, I, I, I had not read The Learning Tree, the book, um, but I had, I saw the film and I thought it was an excellent story. And it's also, um, being a filmmaker, I mean, it has issues because um, now I know more about filmmaking than I did when I saw the movie. But Gordon had never made a film before, so mm-hmm. it's definitely is 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 elements to it that are rough. But there's a genuineness to the quality of the story that he's trying to tell that's there. Uh, um, yeah. So I think it's you know and he definitely has a uh, he he thought about one time being a cinematographer, uh, uh, and but realizing that that that's an awful lot to put on you as a director to be the writer director and try to shoot it too and then yeah you know so he he uh he opted out for that but it has a cinematographer's eye to it, imagery and the, and the composition and things like that i mean obviously shaft was the one that really made me say oh shit this is what i want to do because <laughs> 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 i mean again i was at that age where it's like oh you know i mean because it was it had elements to it it was an exciting picture it was obviously even though he says he did it just to make money which i know he did do i mean i'm, I'm clear about that um you know because it wasn't just like his kind of movie as a personality mm-hmm. But he knew that this was a story that needed to be told. He, needed, he was trying to do something as a hero, you know, a contemporary urban hero. Um, so that film came. And then, um, then Shaft 2. He didn't want to do Shaft 3. He thought it was a terrible script. He wasn't wild about Shaft 2 anyways as a script. I mean, because what was happening is that pretty soon they didn't want to tell this, an honest story. They just wanted to tell. It's kind of what happens with the superhero movies. You know, sure. they just, Hollywood gets into the situation where they're just trying to make a buck. So let's just ratchet it up another notch you know this was good but let's ratchet that up again right. and then the third one he didn't even want to get into um, so he did not do that one but then he did uh, he wanted to do something with that white actors which so he did super cops um which i thought was it's entertaining movie and it's good and again how he was going to try and he really was going to try to have a career as a filmmaker and kind of let other things go mm-hmm. um and, and so unfortunately um that followed uh, uh, Red Belly, which he, you know, um, Hollywood just didn't like it and they shelved it. I, mean, I think that's probably his best film. I thought it was staggeringly good. And I'd never heard anyone ever talk about it ever. I mean, I'm, I'm young ish, but what, how disappointing was that for him? And yeah, it happen? was really disappointing. And that's partly um, why he didn't make, really make another movie until he was approached to do um, a, a Solomon Northrop story which mm-hmm. was basically for television. And he realized that Hollywood just, that, you know, he had other scripts, he had other ideas. Um, you know, um, I've read a couple of the scripts that he wanted to make, which would have been brilliant films. They were more urban-based emotional stories, more like Lead Belly. Um, you know, one was a young boy uh, who was, uh, was an orphan. He was being sent to a private school and how to deal with that in an all-white private school and his emotional journey in that. I mean, that's what he wanted to do. Those kinds of stories, if you listen, read his books, you know, he wanted to do Shannon, which was about New York in the um, early 1900s, and, um, you know, which was a great story. And he's, he's actually wrote the book, too. If you ever get a chance to read the book okay. um, called Shannon. And, um, and so he just realized that it just, it, how he was there to make money. He says it in the movie. He, right. I mean, he's pretty, he's, he's really open about that. I mean, he just, because... Um, again, he doesn't doesn't suffer fools, and he's basically open and honest. If you ask him a question, 
on the subject of Lead Belly, did, did he get the feeling that because it was like a music biopic so firmly rooted in the black perspective that like in and also like really sidelines the Lomaxes in this in this way that history that a, a, a white history does not do? Is that part of why Paramount wasn't into it? It was a black movie. I mean, it's right. basically a black character. There's not, there's no white character that sort of moves the story forward, which is what Hollywood likes, right. you know. You know, um, it happens. Unfortunately, it happened even in the, the Miles Davis movie that that um, Don Cheadle did. I mean, they had to create a white character to move the story forward. The POV character. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the unfortunate thing. And again, Gordon doesn't suffer fools. He's just like, okay, you're here to make money. This is not what I'm interested in. I'll go back to writing books and making photos yeah, yeah. and you know, this photo painting series that can kind of follow that. And it's, un- it's unfortunate because I think that even when we were making this movie, we talked about um, he, he wanted to make another feature and he had an idea. It was about um, Turner, the painter. And um, he was in discussions and he needed to, you know, he even asked me what I'd be, when you get to a certain age as a director, they, they will only ensure you if there's another younger person um, that's uh, alongside you. And so, so it's, it's a, um, I told him that I would do that. Um, Turner's work is great. He loved his work. And, you know, and I think because Gordon was a photographer and had this visual sense, imagine what somebody who had that visual sense would have done with the film and a painter like Turner's right. work. And I just, I, I mean, I, I, it was a great, great script, great project. And it's unfortunate that it didn't get many when you think back on the hours spent interviewing him, were there any sticking points? Was there anything he didn't want to talk about? Or was uncomfortable with? Yeah, yeah, um, yes. Uh, again, I mean, we finally got it, but it took a long time. It was him and Gloria Vanderbilt's relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, he did finally come to that. Um, that was hard. That was really hard. He didn't um, want to talk about it. It was really, she wanted to talk, but he didn't want to talk about it. I mean, they I mean, they lived across the street from each other. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a real deal type of you know, love that was actually not right at the time or society didn't think it was right at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too bad because they definitely were you know, sort of soulmate in, in a way. Right. Um, they did, you know, um, he just felt badly, I think, I think, and I'm not totally sure about that. He felt that, that he would have ended up not being Gordon Parks um, during the, because they definitely would have ostracized him. Um, and that, that she would have been fine because She's rich, so that doesn't matter, you know. And he felt that 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 his reputation and the work he wanted to do, as it relates to as a black man in, in America, would have would have not had the same impact. And I think he was right about that. I really enjoyed and appreciated the time you spent considering and talking to his family about. Not in a negative way, but just like, what was it like to be raised or not raised by this iconic person? Because so many documentaries about so-called, you know, great men just don't really have any interest in that. The assumption is just like, yeah, they weren't really around and this thing is more important. But you and and seemingly everyone involved was interest, like, open about that. I don't want to genuflect to this man because we all are human and we all have our value systems. We all have our flaws. Um, but I want people to, when they see this film, to feel like they know him, they, they had a relationship with him, even if it's white, you know, 
that they had a relationship. They know what it was like with his, with his kids. He knows what it was like growing up around him. Some of the levels of pain, which, you know, um, some of the painfulness of the kids who sort of cut out, I, I would tell you that, only because I watched and watched the trailer and I, I, I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't make a movie to hurt him, you know, because some of his kids are pretty honest about, you know, that he wasn't ever around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just the realities of the life. You know, you don't do what he does and be around all the time. And his last wife talks about it. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like living in a washing machine. It's like, he's, you know, it's, and so that can drive some people really crazy. So mm-hmm. I, that was my goal. And, I, and I'm glad you feel that way because that was what it was. Um, I just want to say, he's a great man. He's great. And this is right. great. And everything he's done is great. And it's all great, great. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is genuflecting. It's, it's like, I wouldn't be making this movie if he wasn't great, you know. So we know what he's done, but who is this guy? Who is he? You know, you know. Um, the thing he didn't want to do, and I, I'll tell you that now that he's, that I remember said this when he was still alive, but he did. I, I, the title of this movie is Half Past Autumn. Okay, this is about life and death, obviously coming. He. I had the scene that's in there, the, 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 the operatic piece was all about the end of his life and him reflecting on that. He really didn't want to do this. He really didn't want to do this. It was took me, you know, weeks to talk him into that and uh, to, to do it. And so we came up with, I came up with the thing is, okay, you don't have to do it on camera. Okay, I'll shoot you, you know, in the water and then do, do it, reflect on your life in voiceover. Okay, so that way, then you know, because he, it was, it was, that was the way it lessened his, um, I think, what he felt was his vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, if he, if he didn't have to be seen on camera talking about the stuff that he talked about again, then just using the music and the style that I did it at the end, which is they ended up using at his funeral, by the way. Mm. Um, wow. um, but he really was not, he, and again, I don't know. I mean, I'm not afraid to die, but nobody wants to die unless they, you know, they, they, they don't feel well, maybe. But he was somewhat apprehensive about even talking about it. Mm. The other person that was apprehensive about talking about it was Prince. I'm assuming not to. Mm. Really, um, you know, he didn't you know, mm. bring up the subject and he just like, you know, what, do you want me to die? No, I, it's just death is waiting for us all. I mean, I don't. avoiding talking about it to me doesn't delay it you know the thing i would wonder if those those two have in common about that is when your life is just an uh, you're able to generate an unbelievable amount of creative output in ways that seem to defy hours in a day it's like you can't think about the end of that yeah yeah i I think it's yeah i I think that i mean i know that when that 9-11 happened um gordon was commissioned to do some photographs and um and he, now he's relatively somewhat older than when we shot the film and so i mean he just physically was going to go down there and do that and he's realized you know he decided to do it from his apartment and he created these images in his apartment with paintings and photography and he had this ability to do this multi-level photography i don't know if you've seen them they're sort of painting and photography on top of can't say i have yeah, he's got a couple of books about that. And okay. so he, he created these images, um, you know, and I, I just, I think that, that he was getting to the point in time in his life where, you know, these were, 
these are things he had to come to terms with. He, but he had a, and I think he had a, an incredibly active life. He'd been all over the world. He'd done all kinds of things. He played tennis. He skied. He's known. I mean, so I think at this point in time, it's like the fear was that that this is what is what's going to happen. I know he said something to Robin Hickman, his niece that also worked on this film about what's going to happen to black boys, black men in this country, because it was, you know, this, what we're actually what we're experiencing right now was something that he had seen clearly. But I think part of it is that he had hoped in his life that maybe he had changed some things. And I think he did, but I think, he, I mean, I would have not wished this on my kids if they were going through this kind of experience that I had when I was young and I would see my grandkids going through the same kind. You know, you know I think he was going through some of that stuff. So, yeah. I want to ask you about one more theme that comes up, which is that um, in the, the 60s, when he is reporting and photographing on the Nation of Islam and the Panthers, both groups ask him if he would be interested. And I think it was from the Elijah, Elijah Muhammad himself was like, will you be a storytelling kind of media vessel for our organization? And in both cases, he, he wasn't interested. And I wondered, I wondered why. I mean, I think that again, going back to the thing, he's, you know, he, he, he wanted to keep everything pure and, and he wasn't going to go in there and tell the story they wanted him to tell. He was going to tell the truth. Um, and the same thing happened at, at, at Time Magazine when he decided to do um, the story of the South, which goes goes down south. Is it because they're asking why are why are black people rioting? I don't understand. He said, you know, I'll show you why they're rioting. You know, and so that's so I think because that's not the story they wanted him to tell. Mm-hmm. They they did not send him down there south to tell the story that he came back with about the family and the sharecroppers and stuff. That was way not what they wanted. Right. So, you know, and and they were somewhat, I won't say disappointed, but they were disturbed by what he came back with uh, to the mm-hmm. point they almost didn't publish it. Um, but Gordon was always going to be Gordon. He was always going to be honest. He was always going to be true and didn't want to hide. So even if it was, if it was a white magazine or, or the Muslims, he was going to be himself and tell the story. And I think his work radiates that. I mean, his new, there's a new book out right now, uh, um, American Crime, whatever it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's this new picture book. I mean, he went across America to taking pictures about crime and really wanted to expose it for what it was, you know, um, and to show people that the majority of, of this is white people, white officers, white detectives um, pursuing black suspects, you know. Mm-hmm. Let me loop back to his film one more time because I wonder, as a, as a filmmaker yourself, when you think about his directorial voice or style, what do you think of? What's the most interesting feature of his voice? His pacing. I mm. think he's got an incredible ability to let things play out. I mean, you know, we live now in a world where your generation, probably even younger, I mean, everything is coming. It's like, let's not use a video fast or superhero fast or, you know, 10 cuts to a fight sequence. Gordon believed in time and space and letting things sit. And even when I did my first cut of Half-Assed Autumn, you know, he said, just give it some time. Just let, let the scene sit and mm. just give it a beat. And then, you know, so I, even I, for, for me, even as a filmmaker, and I had already made, and I made my career as, you know, with music videos and things like that. So even I had to learn to like slow down. <laughs> you know, it's not about, the, you know, because, you know, the reason music videos have trained and, and 
train people to, to capture images quickly in their head and register them. It's not so much about the registration, it's about allowing the emotion to sink in because really films plots are driven by emotion and not by action. Uh-huh. So you know, that's one that's one thing that he did. And I think and he's he's a camera person. So I always love the shot in my belly where where he's breaking the rocks. You can you can uh, I've got the line right now is you can capture my body but you can't you know my mind and, Right. You know, that's in a, and a, this, the telephoto lens with the sun behind him. I think that's an incredible shot. He's coming back up. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, shot yeah, each yeah, 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 yeah. Ending. Yeah, yeah. So that's the kind of stuff that I love. You know, so that's great. Well, I, I, I have to say, like the the mentality you spoke of just there, of people are going to need this when you're gone. Is putting trying to put together this podcast about him and his, his film work. It, it's truly the most comprehensive thing. And while there's a million and one photography books, there yours is the is the thing in the film medium that kind of captures that legacy. So I thank you for making it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, I think that we as artists are here to sort of capture a moment in time and then push it towards the future because, you know, all of us, again, like we said, you know, death is coming for us all. So we put, you know, what, is it, what you leave behind is what's going to be here. So when they say, okay, you know, what did, what did you do while you were here in, you know, August 7th? 2020, you can say, I did this interview yeah, on tape. <laughs> As a verb, yeah. yeah right. Yeah, right, exactly. You know what I mean? Oh, man. Um, well, Craig, such a pleasure to talk to you. I really do thank you for doing this. Oh, no problem. I appreciate it. Thank you for being in touch with me. Get out of the way. Cats ain't gonna be here. You should be here. Open it up. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. Can't say he gonna be here. And he ain't. Nineteen seventy-one Shaft, based on the Ernest Tideman novel. The cool black private eye John Shaft is hired by Cro- Let me try that again. Did you write? Do you write these intros? Let, let no, that's just the IMDb ones. <laughs> I, know, I know, but I wonder if the audience is wondering if Noah sat down and wrote a cool black private eye. A cool black private eye John Shaft is hired by a crime lord to find and retrieve his kidnapped daughter. Is that what happens in the movie Shaft? I think like beat for beat, that's almost only what happens in the movie shaft this movie most so of this movie is him getting to the conversation to do the thing and then like he does the thing and then the movie's over it's pretty funny how it's like all like no plot and all plot it's a weird experience watching shaft absolutely and i just absolutely love that the first what feels like 15 minutes of this movie is a montage of shaft walking around times square in the early 1970s, which was a fucking shithole. I'm going to be and honest. It, that's the best part of the movie. It is. It's absolutely. that I love. I mean, this movie rivals uh, Taxi Driver in its ability to convey New York at this time. It's it's fantastic. Uh, and that incredible Isaac Hayes, of course, like Shaft song. Oh, yeah. Iconic iconic uh over the top of this guy walking around the his his breath is hot and it's like a winter morning it's so good turtleneck and leather trench coat i know that as craig said like gordon parks did this movie for the money because there's not i mean there's not a lot of like 
I don't think earnestness to the the character like let's find out who this guy is i've seen this movie like 10 times um, oh wow we would watch it constantly in high school um because we were obsessed with like how you know violently bad the acting is sometimes <laughs> um but the one thing i never noticed of course is what a great looking movie it is because i just didn't have any appreciation for visual filmmaking as a 16 year old. Um, but the colors, the tones, the lighting in the offices, some of the, um, you know, when they go into bumpy Jonas's office for the first time and he's just like perfectly framed with white carpet sitting back. Um, looks like a bond villain. It's incredible. Incredible. And that, yeah, that opening is just like, it's like how epic and staged it is, but also how it manages to capture like you said, just New York at the time, him kind of walking through the the demonstrators who were like, apply for a job at the Times. The Times is how I got my job. And you see Roundtree kind of like look back and like kind of snort a little bit about like these squares who got their, got their jobs from the Times. Um, Absolutely. And there's that fucking shot where he's, it's like the sixth minute of him walking, but you, you think you're seeing him, but it's, in the reflection of a window and then the camera two seventies around back and you see him walk by and then he like meets the guy who tries to sell him the watch. It's an incredible shot. It's very good. Even if you don't shaft is on Netflix, even if you don't want to watch all of shaft, Holy shit. The first 10 minutes are amazing. Yeah. And there's also, it has this way of showing these like very like New York Manhattan of the time period, sort of like how everything has a back door. Yeah. Which is so cool. Like, I mean, the Disneyfication of Times Square where everything like has a line and a security checkpoint and whatever now. Like, it just doesn't exist in the way that Shaft does it where, you know, he notices the one guy like hanging out at the bodega. So he like goes in through the back door of the lobby of this building to like catch him unaware. It's incredible that just like the geography of it is a character in and of itself. And sort of like the gloomy hallways leading to more prestigious looking offices are like that he has a it's a real focal point. You know, I I love the contrast between like the vestibule for Bumpy's office and the office himself. Like mm-hmm. the, how the the disparity there says more about him as a character and and sort of New York office spaces, of course. But then it does uh, you know about set design or something. I love that point. I also think it's interesting to to hear people who know uh, New York and its racial history better talk about how cool it was that Shaft lived downtown. He's a distinctly yes. like uh, you know below Forty Second Street character. Absolutely, and that uh, that great apartment with the staircase. We never go up there, and his bed's in the living room. What can possibly be on that second floor? <laughs> that is true. Um, the a thing I remember that I hadn't, I'd laugh to high heaven about as a teenager was just the fact that he has that giant picture of himself on the living room end table. So when his like apparently like steadiest lady friend comes to visit and you get the movie's iconic sex scene, um, big old picture of Shaft just staring him down the whole time. <laughs> Had you ever seen this movie before? I'd seen this movie in college. Okay. Um, What's interesting to me, too, that, I mean, like, Gordon Parks is such an influential person in that, like, you know, not only was he the first black director to make, like, a big studio movie, but also, like, he started a whole genre of filmmaking yeah. with this movie, you know, which is, of course, black exploitation, And that's the context in which I saw it in college. Um, 
but yeah, it's just so interesting to have like these things set up, like the trope of, you know, the guy who's so, you know, narcissistic that he has a huge picture of himself in his own apartment, right. you know, but I think, you know, and what will inevitably be lost in some of like the campier versions of this story uh, in the next 10 years is the fact that like there are female characters in and around these men who are like telling them the truth. Like, I thought it was so interesting where, you know, at one point, this woman that he brings home, like, he's just, like, making some calls and doing some business, and she, like, wants to hang out a little bit. And she's like, you're great in bed, but you're, like, terrible at this. Yeah. Um, And I think it's so interesting that, you know, Parks gives that moment some breathing room where there's, like, a pause there of when there's more dialogue that you can kind of think about, like why am I rooting for this guy? Like he seems quote unquote cool. And like the movie thinks he's cool, but like, I almost feel like the director doesn't think he's cool. You know, the director seems very skeptical of him and that's like kind of an interesting place to be, you know, cause he has admirable politics and he does admirable works. But I think that may be like a Gordon Parks, you know, kind of, thing a kind of theme for him is these guys who do interesting stuff but weren't necessarily like great people and the conflict between you know art and artist or work and worker you know whatever it happens to be and then like do the ends justify the means does shaft stepping in to do the right thing at the end of this movie and telling the cop basically to go fuck himself because he just solved his case like is that worth you know that the fact that this guy's like kind of an asshole i think this is a great point i also think it applies in a really interesting way to how the movie's sex scene is filmed when you're talking this is i don't mean this as a crass joke but talking about the ends for a 1971 movie about like how cool this guy is and his facility with the ladies that scene is all about that woman's orgasm the the whole thing is her fingers on his back and like when people call this like a black superhero movie it's all about like what this person is capable of not necessarily like what's in his heart because what's in his heart could be i mean who knows again it's another movie that's very external i do not know john shaft it is pretty funny and like the movie has like its low budget moments so much so that you know, I was almost surprised how proficient the other movies are by comparison. Mm-hmm. Like, I almost think his other two that we're talking about today, Learning Tree and Lead Belly, are like much better technical movies than this one. Um, Like, technical in a narrative sense, I would agree. I do think this is a great But I would say, movie. like, technical in movie making as well. Like, the dude gets shot a number of times and he's like bloody. But then in like the next shot when he's on the fur couch, like he's not bleeding anymore because like they needed to give the, the fur couch back to the prop department at the end or something. Gordon Parks is not exactly uh, Justin Lin when it comes to action movie skills. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the ending sequence is pretty great. uh, The daring rescue that they do, but yeah, which who, what are the acting which actors do you think in particular were not were not up to your standards oh well roundtree would just sometimes finish a line by yelling or like even in adr he will like seem to yell um like the line that we went nuts over as a kid is when 
Vic is the main cop and he's got this sort of like skeezy looking partner who comes up at the end of the questioning and the beginning is like, hey, where are you going, Shaft? And Roundtree with just the weirdest time and goes, to get laid, where the hell are you going? Ah, ha, 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 like just like the, we gotta modulate that laugh yeah. a little bit. His laughs are a little like Steve McQueen in the original Thomas Crown Affair. They're wow. just like, they don't land quite where they need to. Yeah, I, that's an interesting point that like, it is perhaps Richard Roundtree who's like the weakest link in the central cast. Because, I mean, I think Moses Gunn. Well, Moses Gunn Bumpy, is a great actor, yeah. I- incredible. I mean, and he, he is fucking chewing on it. Like this scene where he gives this the speech about how much he cares for his daughter. He basically, you know, ends the scene looking into camera, just chewing on the lines. I mean, he's a great right. theater actor. He knew. And I think he knew who he was working with, too, as like a. For sure. Um, I mean, and Charles Coffey kind of has like a gritty realism to him. Uh, he almost like just like sauntered off of the set of like the taking of Pelham one, two, three, and like right into this movie. Right. right. Bundini Brown is hysterically bad. I think, uh, uh, you know, Bundini Brown, for people who don't know, was like Muhammad Ali's hype man, his best friend, the, the person who helped coin rumble, young man, rumble, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Um, he plays Bumpy's, um, like lead henchman and he just speaks his choice is to speak so slowly I think what's so funny is that Bundini's Brown Bundini Brown's entire life was a performance but like you turn on a camera and he just does not know what to do I wonder what Christopher St. John as Ben Buford is doing in this movie both like in a script sense yeah. and also in like the actor well, it's interesting, and I mean, I think calling it a superhero movie is sort of apt because, you know, Shaft goes and sees Ben. He's like, hey, you sell drugs. Did you also kidnap Bumpy's daughter? And they're like, no. I mean, three people die before we get to know. Right. Uh, but then he, like, joins the gang as they, like, try to save the world. And it's just sort of, I mean, it feels like a product, frankly, of like a a Marvel movie more than it feels like a movie from 1971. Uh, But yeah, I would agree with you that the plot is there in the movie, like pitching it to an executive sort of way. But in the, why is this character in this scene? And why is, why is he loyal to you and not the other guy kind of questions, uh, really kind of confuse this movie if you do watch it in earnest a funny thing is that oh in tideman a funny a funnier thing than the joke you just made is that no 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 shaft movie ever figures that out like it from the two sequels to this one big score which was also gordon parks and shaft in africa um and then which was very much not gordon parks right Shaft in Africa, holy shit. If you've never seen that, it is... You have no idea what you're in for. Um, but then the John Singleton one in 2000 and the just horrendous new one that came out last year. Um, the plots are always just like such nonsense. Like they, they've never been able to move the so-called franchise past the first 10 minutes of the original, which is just like... It's really just a montage of a guy in a leather jacket walking around Midtown Manhattan. Looking so cool and... I I think that really had a profound impact on a lot of people as well it should have because a lot of movies are just like a guy who looks cool but it's funny that this character has you have, what's that you finish your something it's just funny that this character has lived on despite having 
no like essential qualities or missions. You have no affection for the Samuel L. Jackson Christian Bale right. shaft? Not really. God, Christian Bale is a racist is terrifying. Though. He is very yes, he is very scary. It was like, what if Patrick Bateman, but like more realistic? <laughs> he was like, no. Yeah, what if instead of like cook and eat girl, Patrick Bateman was just in the KKK? Right. Okay, what's your rating on Shaft? Music incredible. Sets, most of them seem practical, incredible. Yeah. Storytelling, acting, not that great. Right. Um, but you were, I mean, you just said you've watched this movie like a dozen times. Yeah. It didn't hold that much for me though. Rewatching it as a, as an adult, I, I was frankly very impressed with the craft. Just the, I took a, what, what I did is I took a bunch of screenshots and sent them to my high school friends and was like, do you remember how good looking this movie was? And everyone was like, no, I was like, yeah, these fucking shots are amazing. But, um, so I don't know. Is that a, does that make it a bad good or a good bad? It's probably a bad good. I might have to say that this movie's a bad bad. Ah, okay. I think compared at least to the other two, it's not that technically interesting. And even like the throwing out the window shot is so, so silly. Funny. And then, like we're talking about, the story itself is difficult to follow. So I think it is neither well-made nor that entertaining. A bad, bad for Shaft, huh? A bad, bad for Shaft. All right, I'm going to give it a bad good. I'm going to give it a bad good. He freely admits he did it for the money. Fun fact about Shaft's big score, which is a worse movie. Um, Gordon Parks did did the soundtrack, did the score. He was like... You know what? I'm going to do even more, and this time without Isaac Hayes. <laughs> Lead Belly? Lead Belly. So between Shaft and Lead Belly, he makes the Shaft Big Score sequel that I just mentioned. Um, he also made a movie called The Super Cops, which I we did not watch, and I know very little about. I think I gather it as another, it's like a new, it's a dirty cop exploitation action movie. Um with actors I do not recognize. But uh, Lead Belly takes us to 1976 and the story of the famous American folk singer, Hootie Ledbetter, otherwise known as Lead Belly, um, played here by Roger Mosley, who is most famous for uh, being on Magnum P.I., piloting helicopters, which he could actually do in real life, Roger Mosley, which is cool. Do you, can he actually play guitar? No. I think that was pretty obvious from this movie that he was not playing guitar. As a as a guitar picker yourself, you didn't think he had the chops? No. My guy was not playing guitar. Um and unfortunately he was not singing either. He does bring a lot of other things to the role. Oh yeah, I mean Roger Mosley's incredible uh in this movie. And this movie's interesting too because and you talked about this a bit in the interview, the idea that it's a pretty quintessential, I would say, music biopic except for the fact that it doesn't actually cover the part of Lead Belly's career where he was right. like a famous musician. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that was like the most of his life. Um, I mean, most of his life, he was just this obscure convict. It completely it is radical in the way it's able to divorce this all-time influential songster, as he calls himself <laughs> in the movie, away from 
the dominant white narrative of him being discovered by folk song collector Alan Lomax and then going around uh, touring and being uh, managed by John Lomax, his his son. I mean, that's basically how Leadbelly ar- arrived to to most of America was like almost like it, it kind of a gross way, actually, in sort of like a, a like a living archive almost. Um, but the the idea that like most of America was more familiar with the archivist than the man is so uh, imbalanced on the basis of race. And I fucking love the way that even though Lomax visiting Hud, uh, Huddy Ledbetter in Angola prison to record him is the framing device, you never go back to it. Um, and at the end, when Lomax is like, well, I'm about to leave you. Thanks for your time and your whole fucking story that I'm going to take. And <laughs> Ledbetter is like, fuck that. I'm going to get out of here and do my own thing. Um, is radical and I think is part of why uh, Paramount didn't want to put out this movie. Well, that's like the thing I think we should talk about up front is the fact that this movie barely saw the light yeah. of day. It uh, it made it was acclaimed at some film festivals uh, slowly over the next couple of years. I went back and read the Roger Ebert review in 1976. He loved it. Um, three and a half out of four for Raj. Um, but yeah. And it basically... It, essentially stopped Gordon Parks from pursuing a directing career. And I was reading an interview with Roger Mosley where he's like, that was easily the best thing I've ever done, the best role that I've ever gotten. Nobody fucking cared. And he started his own production company in the 80s. He was so mad about um, how betrayed he felt by the white uh, industry he was working in. You caused me to weep, you caused me to mourn, you caused me to leave my home, the last words I heard her say, I want you to sing me a song, Irene Goodnight. Hold on, I'm in the Pat here. It begins with a sort of Spartacus like imagery and this sort of grandness to it, uh, and then creates this, yeah, almost like biblical parable about this man who like cannot escape violence sort of because of his own his own sort of penchant for pain. And with, I mean, if you had someone like Kirk Douglas in the center of this movie, I mean, it's it mm-hmm. wins all the Oscars. But there's something so kind of, you know, profound about how this seems like something that's, I mean, that I'd never even heard of this movie. And seeing how, like, epic it is in scope and how, like, very Hollywood it is in scope, you know, is, is so tragic. And it's just so, I mean, this is... Gordon Parks thought this was his best movie. And in a lot of ways, I think that's indisputable. Like there are just scene after scene after scene where you're like, this is beautiful. This is epic. This is gorgeous. This is sweeping. There's just no reason that people haven't heard of this movie other than. Especially for being a biopic of a pretty famous American music legend Mm -hmm. who, you know, allegedly inspired everywhere from Kurt Cobain to Bob Dylan. Right. Right. This complicates the outlaw fable in such an interesting way. I mean, there were there were times in this movie where I was just like, Hootie, 
don't get your knife out again. But then I sort of started to think of like for every time he is sort of in sort of an intrinsic way, violent or impulsive, uh, there is another time where society does that to him. So this idea of like man who can't sit still, man who can't form a relationship, man who is always on the run, it's just, it is a chicken or the egg question for him of like, if he had a little something in him at the very beginning, well, he's got to go. Even if, even if he was reckless that first night with that guy at the dance when he's a teenager, well, here comes the sheriff to his house, going to do who knows right. what to him. So he's got to leave. So for every time he seems to make a bad decision, society is also like, well, you can't fucking sit still. We're going we're gonna to get you. That's, that's exactly. That's so interesting because his crimes compared to your average Hollywood Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid type protagonist type outlaws his crimes are so petty yet he's like sentenced to 50 years on the chain gang right. because of whatever i mean it whatever is murder but you know it's so interesting how it almost seems like i mean like you know that butch cassidy and sundance kid are going to get gunned down at the end without seeing it you almost know i mean because of the framing device of the movie itself but like the fact that he was going to end up in prison feels inevitable anyway. Like that feels like the looming thing of like, if you have a man that's this out there, that this sexual, this violent, this creative, this sort of genius, like, of course he's destined to be put away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He is haunted by it. You called it looming. But I, I think even in the filmmaking, one of the most breathtaking moments of the movie is after he has killed his sort of friend or acquaintance who they got in, other like drunken standoff about um because hootie had slept with his wife or something um but as hootie is trying to run away from the scene of the crime gordon parks edits in the sound of a hammer and shackles before the scene changes i mean he's he's haunted by that fate and then it cuts to him being in prison like and, and Roger Mosley even turns around and stares into the dark like who made that hammer sound it's such creative filmmaking tells you a lot absolutely I really want to talk about that scene if we can break it down a little bit further in which uh, Madge Sinclair as Miss Ula comes to like the prohibition speakeasy to tell Ledbetter to come home like it's getting late because, you know, she's the one who took him in off the street. She gave him the money for the guitar and for his clothes and everything. And all she wants back is, you know, the requisite affection. And I guess maybe I'm explaining to myself, like, why this scene goes down this way. But he, like, just looks back at her with such disdain mm -hmm. for implying that anyone can tell him what to do. You know, that smacked of, like, Marcus from the first movie for me. The idea that, like... Who who do you think you are, drunk dad, like telling me to get back in the house? Like you have your flaws too. Like I'm going to do my thing here. I think this movie really takes the time to actually, you know, sit with the heartbreak of Miss Eula. You know, it, it, I mean, and we, we see her again like some years later too. And like I think like one of the most haunting scenes, I mean, th these are pretty trauma-filled movies, but, like, that's, I think, the the most sort of haunting scene for me, is, like, this ghost town of this, like, used to have been... Sweetsport. You know, yeah, this city, this bustling city with, like, catfish and hot jazz, and now it's just, you know, a ghost, and she's one of the people haunting the, the alleyway mm -hmm. there. Um, 
it's supposed to be this sort of, you know, port in the storm. Like I finally found somebody from the old days, like, please sit down. Let's share stories. Let's, and he just does not stay. And that, that, that pain on uh Madge Sinclair's face of like, Oh fuck. He's, it's kind of like, it's the dark side of still crazy after all these years, like running across your old lover and being like, Oh wow. The, the thing I have to experience is like the, the negative side of the fact that, He's not that kind of man. He's not staying. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it reminded me a lot of like the, you may be good in bed, but you're like bad at this yeah. part kind of commentary as well. Lead Billy is pretty self-serving in his songs as witnessed by when he sings for the governor, where he sings a song that is approximately about, Hey, Mr. Governor, I'm playing a song for you right now. And if you enjoy it, please commute my sentence. That scene though is <laughs> like, so wrapped with all of these uh different angles of sort of disgusting spectacle it's it's it is the elevated sequel to the boxing scene in learning tree where you see like as a black entertainer how disorienting and gross it can be to sort of like be seen by white people and and that's also the scene where you remember like holy fuck this is gordon parks because it starts with the prisoners in a line hoeing you see a little kid all in white just on the other side of the fence and it zooms out further and you see the cocktail party with like barbed wire and beneath and like only a kid who doesn't know better would be in the no man's land between the white partiers and the uh and the people who've been incarcerated and it's it's such wonderful visual storytelling it's also interesting too. My takeaway from that shot was when you show like a child being so like baffled in that moment that he can't look away. It sort of speaks to the idea that like it's out like what he's seeing is outrageous. Like only the influence of society and these older people and being told that this is normal is the reason that they can sip their tea and have pleasant conversation. But to this little boy who like only knows that people are people at this mm-hmm. point. He, he, yeah, he can't reconcile it. And that's such a haunting image. I agree. It's true. Um, another scene right after, right after that, or no, it's before that, um, is when Paul Benjamin plays Lead Belly's dad and shows up. And it's so telling. Again, like nobody has to say this stuff in a 50 year old movie, but the, the notion of the chain gang so resembles slavery that his dad thinks it's reasonable to try to buy him out of modern day slavery. Yes. And that's such a, yeah. And you have the scene. scene with the captain who's just, again, the, the white person being like, sir, like, what do you think we're doing here? I can't take your money, sir. Yeah. I also think it's interesting to speaking about like, just like the codes of all three of these movies, just how often, white characters when referring to black men under the age of 60 and a sentence with boy. Oh yeah. It's like, it's just the, the repetition of it. And maybe the fact that I watched, you know, these three movies uh, close to back to back to back, but it's just, it's so, constant. it's so constant, but I bet. So was the historical context for it. Yeah. Like that's what's that's what's haunting about these movies is that they feel true in a way that makes me uneasy. Sure. Well, because history, 
especially with Lead Belly, it makes history feel shorter, which is so interesting in these in the the times of Black Lives Matter and protests that we're living in. Is you know constantly the defense from uh, white people with either bad intentions or just ignorance. It's like that shit was a long time ago. We haven't gotten a chance to get over that yet. And then you see a movie set in the 20s and 30s about a historic black artist who can't get his respect and is constantly seen through the eyes of a white archivist. And then 40 years after that, a pioneering black artist tries to make a movie to set that right. And the studio's like, no, we're not putting that out. People won't care. And then for 50 years, it goes undiscovered like history is short this shit collapses in on itself and repeats yes there is a conversation between lead belly the character you know a hundred years ago and then this artist 50 years later and then us as the audience watching it now and you can't help but i mean that's the fascinating thing when you put you know movies not as history but like and history like next to it you know, there's something so fascinating, too, just about me as an audience member, you know, waiting for these moments of racism because it's a historical movie. The other thing we should probably say as we wrap up here is that Lead Belly's music is really good, in my opinion. I mean, I, I really enjoy the the old-timey folk sound, and some of the lyricism just holds up so well. The, the classic line in Good Night, Irene, of sometimes I live in the country, sometimes I live in town, sometimes I have a great notion to jump in the river and drown is like, yeah, of course Bob Dylan was interested in this guy. Because <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. amazing. It's like, you know, it's part nursery rhyme and then it's a, um, you know, pseudo suicidal thought about how difficult his life is. Yeah, well, been. it's part autobiography. Yeah. And I think that's what's, you know, in many ways, a lot of music biopics fall short in the way they explain why and how the music was sort of inspired. Like it's always There's no just like, scenes in this movie where he writes a song. Exactly. He never like was just like, huh, interesting. But you like, you do see the moment where he quote unquote writes the song. It's right. just the thing that happened to him, you know, right. and the way he talks about himself too, like somebody stuck him and he stuck him better. It's like, what the fuck does that mean? And then of course you see that scene and, and indeed somebody stuck him and then he stuck him better. Um, so, but yeah, I think that's what's cool about this movie is that it doesn't need to have the montage of like in the studio and like, Oh, what if we do the drums double time? Then it'll sound really good. Right. <laughs> I think this movie is a good, good. I think for me, it's the, I know you like preferred learning tree. I think it's the best of the three. I think it's like, this is the kind of movie that we should be talking about now. And I don't think that you and I are necessarily the people to be its lead champions. Like I hope that um, more critics of color uh, see it and interact with it in the coming years. Um, but I, I just, I just look at it and the things it does for both music biopics, black filmmakers, black actors telling stories in interesting ways. Um, people should be actively writing about and trying to reclaim this movie. I think it's great. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it is really, really good. Um, I think it's a good good. But I'm glad to have put this on my radar and have watched it. And I think it's kind of ironic that my least favorite of the three is the movie that's ubiquitous. Yes, true. Very true. Uh, interesting side note, I did not have a chance to watch it or was able to get a hold of it, but he, Gordon Parks, his, his only return 
to filmmaking after this, I believe, is he makes the Solomon Northup. He makes the 12 Years a Slave story for TV in the in the early 80s, which is obviously 30 years ahead of Steve McQueen's Oscar-winning film. I'd love to see that at some point. Check out check out some of these movies that, that aren't Shaft. They are worthy of rediscovery. And thank you to Craig Rice for joining us. Thank you to the playlist, as always. Noah, thanks for talking to me. And oh, me, my God. Yeah. It was my pleasure. It was great. great to behold your face on my little phone here and talk about movies for, oh, God. Look how long we've been doing this. Oh, wow. All right. We'll, uh, we'll be back with you soon, folks. Thanks for your listening. Uh, how many strings you got there? Well, <laughs> two to one, huh? Well, I guess I'm a scratch off in this race. <laughs> you ready, old man?